You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. I've just had a blast uh, with this series, and I hope it's been uh, meaningful to you as we're journeying through the Apostles' Creed, touching on those core essential faiths, uh, elements of our faith as articulated in the Apostles' Creed. And we come this morning to that passage that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without a doubt, the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious, the one we know the least about, and therefore I suggest perhaps the most subjective uh, interpretation. But I'd also suggest that there's no better place to learn about the Holy Spirit uh, in the Bible than right here listening in to one of the final conversations that our Lord Jesus had uh, on his last night on earth. And if you know you're speaking to your loved ones for the very last uh, time, you don't talk about the weather. You go to the most core essential stuff that you want to share with them, that you want them to grip, that you want them to know, that you want to leave uh, with them because uh, final words are, are core, are foundational words. And most, interestingly enough, of the last words of our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry were of or about uh, the Holy Spirit, which shows us you know, just how really important all of this is. So let's look at this morning's text under three uh, headings. I think from this we can draw who is the Holy Spirit, uh, second, what the Holy Spirit does, and then third, how we might receive what the Spirit gives. <clears throat> First of all, who the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus gives us three clues, three insights, three indicators. And the first one's in verse 17 where he says, the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. Him. Notice here that the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person, not a force, not a nebulous power, uh, not it, but him. And the second clue then, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. We'll get to the word helper in a couple of minutes, but what I want to focus on here is the word another. There are two words in Koine Greek, uh, the language that it was first written down. He was speaking Aramaic, but they wrote it down in Greek. And two words that can be uh, translated another. One of them is another that is unlike, and the other one is another that's exactly like. And he uses the second of these two words, which is his way of saying that he is God. And Jesus said earlier in, in chapter 10, I and, the, I and the Father are one. And he's already said in chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. So he's already saying 
the Holy Spirit is not only a person, but an infinitely equal person with me and the Father. And the third clue, and you have to look carefully to catch it, I will not leave you as orphans. He's, his, his living, his leaving, rather, is the theme of the previous several chapters. He's repeatedly telling them, and chapter 14 begins with, I'm leaving you, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many mansions. And then he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then in verse 23, my father will love him and he will come to him, meaning a uh, follower of Jesus, making our home with him. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving you, but the Holy Spirit is coming, and when he comes, I will be coming, and my Father will be coming with me. <laughs> Welcome to the dizzying, mystifying, stupefying, mysterious world of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three gods. They are not, they are one God, but they are distinct. It's not like one person who sometimes wears three different hats. It's not one, one God and one person, not three gods and three persons. There's one God in three persons. So in one sense, Jesus can leave and the Holy Spirit can come. And in another sense, since they are so one, when you get the one, you get them all. At first, that's, that's always just so very confusing, and in many ways it still is. But the more that you meditate on it, the more that you pray about it, and ask the Father to lead you and Jesus to teach you, you will see that the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is triune, is actually the blazing, brilliant heart of the Christian faith. And for our purposes there's one thing we need to learn from the doctrine of the Trinity. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're not getting some nebulous force, not some emanation from the distant God planet. Has to have sound effects, I think. Not, you know, not some high voltage zap. But God himself is coming to live with in you, full stop. <clears throat> so let me ask, let's just get really practical. Do you live your life knowing that God is with you? That he's right beside you, that he's right inside you, that he's really here close, seeing, hearing, feeling, rejoicing, aching with you. And the reason I ask you that <clears throat> is because the, the, the scripture says in numerous places, <clears throat> many times even in a command voice, that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And since our minds 
think in pictures, being filled with the Spirit starts to move away of thinking about the Spirit as a person to thinking about the Spirit as a thing. And that evokes ideas of, I don't know what, a liquid, a gas, data, an electrical charge, a deposit in an account. Instead of one gallon of the Spirit, I'd like 22 gallons, please. And as soon as you begin to think about the Holy Spirit that way, as a thing, our minds automatically look for some kind of technique. To be filled or to have more of the Holy Spirit becomes a, te- a technique. If, uh, so what are the two or three things that I have to do to get more of that thing? Here's where we have to be very, very careful. If the Holy Spirit is a person, how on earth can you have more or less of a person? To be a full person, to be filled with the Spirit, rather, is more akin to being in love. But even that doesn't quite communicate the premise actually, or effectively, adequately. So simply ask yourself, have you come to the place where you know, not just abstractly, that God himself is always with you, including right now? Do you live your life as if God is with you, or or do you live your life as if he's somewhere else? This is key. Are you living with an acute conscious awareness of this glorious person in the middle of your life or not? Let's think about it practically. There are lots of things you would never do in front of anyone that you respected. Well, we have somebody, more than somebody we respect, right in the middle of our life. If you grasp this seemingly elementary truth and you cement it tight to the middle of your life, it will change everything. It'll change your self-image, your self-respect, your self-regard, your self-compassion, and your self-control. When talking about the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. When the Spirit comes into our lives, in a sense, we're getting God's very life blood, partakers in his divine nature. And this means very practically It means there's no wound so deep that this can't heal. There's no brokenness so great that this can't repair. There's no habit in you so binding that you can't be freed from it. Basic, elementary, critical. Because if we don't get past this notion 
of God is with us and living inside of us. That the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers and fuels and guides and is with us then what we have is nothing but another form of the law, which we find is impossible to fulfill in our human strength. So, are you filled with the Spirit? Be filled with the Spirit is living consciously aware of who is right with you always. That's who he is. What the Spirit does. What the Bible says about what the Spirit does is so multifaceted, so multidimensional, that it's really impossible to combine it to, to one message or simply refer to one passage. But for the sake of time, I'll mention just two of them. <clears throat> In verse 26, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is with you with us, with me, forever. And the you here is plural. In other words, y'all. In fact, it's all y'all. <clears throat> He's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, he doesn't just bind you and unite you to Christ, but he binds you and unites you with everyone else bound and united to Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us into a new family with not only a new father, but new brothers and sisters. That's every other Christ-confessing person on the face of the earth, no matter their culture, their race, their temperament, their language, you now have a spiritual bond of infinite depth because that bond is the Holy Spirit himself forever. And Jesus said to her in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now I know those, those statements seem contradictory. If you believe in me, you'll die, but you'll live. And then he says, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Okay, what does all that mean? If you believe in Jesus Christ, of course your body one day is gonna die and you'll be resurrected. But in another sense, He's saying once the Holy Spirit brings the love of God into your life, listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, writing to all Christians, and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love through the Holy Spirit never, never, never ends. Right now, you have the love of God. The moment you die, you're going to have the love of God. No interruption. Death, therefore, does not have the final word because you have the Holy Spirit in Jesus' words forever. In another sense, we're not in heaven yet, but the Spirit gives us community with God and with other believers now 
and a, in a lowercase sense, yep, heaven on earth. I want that to sink in. Because there are two more things you need to grasp. And here they are. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and he's the ultimate friend. First, the spirit of truth, verse 17. And this is very, very, very important. Never pit the Holy Spirit against what the Bible has to say. It's very tempting to say, well, you have your doctrine, but I have the Holy Spirit and I have experiences to back it all up. Friends, he just said the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. Look down in verses 25 and 26, and there's a, there's a two-layer promise here. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And one level, Jesus is teaching his disciples. The Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything I said to you. And he's teaching them for several years. And he's going to keep teaching them even after his resurrection. And he says, the Holy Spirit will enable you to remember the things I'm telling you, the things you read in the scripture, so that when you and your colleagues write it down, it'll be the truth to those in the immediate hearing. When they go to write all of this down, it'll be truth and therefore can be added into the body of scripture, become the New Testament. One of the ways he is the spirit of truth is he's going to make sure that the New Testament is as inspired as the Old Testament, that the apostles with the Spirit's help are going to remember the things accurately that Jesus Christ taught, help them to understand, write them down so that the New Testament will be inspired as inspired as the Old Testament. So the spirit of truth creates the Bible and that's not all, because he's not just talking to the apostles. Both 1 John chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 teach us that when the Spirit gives us an anointing that helps us understand the truth. And I know this is pretty dangerous ground in thin ice, because I was raised a Pentecostal. <laughs> and everything was about experience. In fact, that's how the, everything about the Holy Spirit was taught from an experiential platform rather than a scriptural uh, platform. And in spirit of absolute transparency, it wasn't until I was already ordained into the ministry, I feel pretty stupid admitting this, it wasn't until I was ordained in the ministry that the Word of God really even came alive to me. And at that point, frankly, it was all very new to me. So how does the Holy Spirit <clears throat> help the Word of God come alive, help us to understand the truth and make the Scriptures reliable? Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments, so now it's you and me reading the Bible, Whoever has my commandments 
and keeps them, obeys what the scripture teaches, whoever, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit himself helps. You don't find that the truth just makes sense to your mind, but God becomes real to you in your heart through his word. When you're wrestling with the commands and the truths of God in the Bible, the Holy Spirit actually brings God to you and he reveals them because he is the spirit of truth. And that spirit of truth, one way to just fine-tune your discerner, the spirit of truth is always edifying, pointing to Jesus, and gentle, as, a, as opposed to being harsh, scornful, and judgmental. As always, an accusatory, that's always the voice of the evil one, always. Spirit of truth, always pointing to Jesus, always edifying, always completely parallel with everything in scripture, never contrary. Now he's also the ultimate friend, and I thought about maybe best friend, but that seems so really overused. I mean ultimate friend, and, and if there's anything, I really want you to grasp these next few minutes because I think this is the stuff that, that, that really can help set believers apart from the rest of the world. The reason I call him an ultimate friend is, is this. In some ways, the most important word in the, in the passage to tell us about the Holy Spirit is, in verse 15, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, and then down at the bottom it reveals, but the helper, the Holy Spirit. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And different Bible translations use different words here. Some say helper, others say advocate, comforter, counselor, and others. Whenever multiple translations render a word in different ways, you know it's because that, that word is so rich that no one English, which is a pretty limited language, no one English word can convey the fullness of its meaning. Helper works, but the fact is, none of these English words, as I said, complete the idea. Advocate can come across just a little too hard. Comforter can come across a little too soft. And counselor comes across a little too clinical. That's why I want us to try on for size ultimate friend. And here's why. The Greek word is parakaletos. Para means alongside, paralegal, right? Alongside. Someone who's alongside you. Not just an hour of a week in his office, but always. Always, always, always. Always helping, always encouraging, always for you, always with you. That's the para. And then kaleo means to declare or to argue. 
And that's the reason none of these words quite come across like ultimate friend, and let me unpack this, a true friend, a better friend than any of your friends, and that's even if you have super great friends. A real friend is not always just for you, but a true friend is willing to argue with you. Now, who's he arguing with? He's making a case, but to whom? Not God and not the world. He's actually arguing against the enemies inside your own heart. Your real friends will make you face your stuff. Am I right? Look, Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are his child. The Spirit bears witness. It's a word that means a character witness, key witness, decisive witness in a trial. It's like you're on trial and the outcome's in doubt. I mean, are you going to be locked up forever and sent up the river or will you be freed? Nobody is sure. In comes the Holy Spirit. He's the star witness who gives his testimony and you're set free. The trial is over. What's this all about? First John, same writer, different, now a letter to the churches, chapter 3, verse 20. <clears throat> For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than your heart. Man, if there's something we all need to put like on the bathroom mirror is this reminder, God is greater than your heart. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than your heart. Know why? Because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And there are two things that the Spirit is always constantly going to argue with you about like any really good friend would. First, the Holy Spirit is going to tell us, climb right into our mustache and tell us about our sin. John says in verse eight, uh, 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. A true friend will tell you when you're being blind to your own sinfulness, your own response, irresponsibility or weaknesses or addiction or stubbornness or dysfunction and hatred. The Spirit will get right in your grill and say, come on, Clegg, you blew it. You need to take responsibility. Hey, you're, you're, I know you're afraid and you're acting way too aggressive in this situation. I know you're insecure because you're acting like a jerk. A good friend will tell you and tell you and tell you and tell you until you hear it and let's thank God for it. Because not only does our heart not want to believe that we're as sinful as the Bible tells us, but it also does not want to believe that we're as loved and accepted in Christ as the Bible says we are. In the end, our hearts are idiots. 
You know the great Disney theme, follow your heart, right? There's, there's huge danger in that. There's huge danger in telling our kids that our own heart is the center of the universe, right? Just need to remind that heart every now and again, you're an idiot. Well, gee, Tom, I'm glad I got here this morning. Listen. Because the other thing the Spirit always does is bear witness that you're a child of God and oh, how we forget it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If it's coming at you as condemnation, it's not from God. So the Holy Spirit moves in and reminds you, hey, you're not living like you're loved. You're living like you're condemned. You don't understand just how loved and accepted you are. You're trying to earn it. You're trying to get it all by yourself. The Spirit comes in, looks around our life, and is brokenhearted whenever he sees us working ourselves to death to prove that we are somebody, or manipulating people, trying to squeeze a little bit more approval out of them. He sees our addictions to power and family and romance and money or whatever else, and he's never going to leave us alone. Most people finally give up, but the Spirit never never will give up on you. Paul writes to all Christians, and I am sure of this, in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's, he can write that with authority because he knows his audience has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never let you stay the way you are, and that's because he is the ultimate friend. So how do we receive what the Spirit has to give? The Holy Spirit has amazing things for us. The community he's given to you, the insight, the growth, and most of all, the ministry as a friend inside the center of your being, working against the various enemies of our heart, accusation, temptation, all that stuff, by telling you the truth. And that constant companion reminding us of the truth, that's the power we need to live in this world in 2019. So how do we receive it? Two things according to the text. If you want the ministry of the second advocate in your life, you have to believe the ministry of the first advocate. Only then can the Holy Spirit, as your second advocate, do the ministry that I've been trying to describe here, and here's how it works. First of all, because he's another advocate, that means his job is always pointing out the work of the first advocate, Jesus Christ. At first, it's mysterious and wonderful to think that Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. I mean, he's praying for us right there, the Father, and it's warm, wonderful thought because that's what we've always thought, the, and, and there is a passage, and let's face it, 
All too often, you and I fail to be everything God wants us to be. And then we wonder about Jesus up there, you know, interceding for us and pleading our case. It's like he's up there saying, whoop, Father, he did it again. Would you give, cut him a break and just give him one little more chance, just a little bit extra mercy? And then we, you know, pretty soon we're thinking, well, even Jesus, I mean, how long can he keep this up for me? How long can the, the Father go until he says, you know, I've just had it with this guy? Then we come to the passage that Jesus shows us what he's really doing up there. Same writer, later, 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Same word, paraclete. Pericletos. Here Jesus Christ, in this case, is being our defense attorney and he's advocating our case, but he's not begging for mercy. He's making a case before the Father based on the law. He's not up there saying, you know, be merciful just one more time. That's because... God already showed his mercy when he sent his son to go to the cross and accomplish our salvation. So what Jesus is really doing is something like, Father, we both know the wages of sin is death and the law demands payment for which you have already been paid. I went to the cross, I shed my blood, I gave my life. So do you see these people here? They've sinned. Yes, they've sinned and they've sinned again. But they trust in me. Therefore, since I paid for their sins, it would be unjust for you to receive two payments for their sin. Therefore, I insist you acquit them again because to not do so would be unjust. Therefore, Father, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. The evil one wants you to believe that the scales of God's justice are tipped against you. And Jesus is up there doing everything he can to pull them down every moment of every day. Instead, remember, the scales of God's justice are completely tipped in your favor and God's justice is like the mountains. It's immovable. It means the justice of God demands that he loved me forever. That's the work of the first advocate. When you let that inside, does that move you? I mean, if it does, that's the second advocate talking to you, pointing you back. 
he's making the case in your own heart that he's making before, that Jesus is making before the Father. That's how the second advocate does his work by pointing to the work of the first advocate. And that's the kind of stuff that not only humbles us out of our pride, but it raises us up out of our despondency. You believe in the work of the first advocate, and the second advocate does his work, giving you infallible peace that comes from an infallible case. Second and last. And we have to obey the truth that we do know. The Bible warns in lots of places, like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. Do not grieve the spirit. Remember, he's a person. And he rejoices when we obey and when we follow, when we live like Jesus. If you obey me, I, I'll be real to you. If you obey me, I'll come to you. If you obey me, and here's the reason why, and don't, he didn't suddenly take a left-hand turn in some kind of harsh legalism. I mean, look at the work of the first advocate. Jesus Christ unselfishly gives up his glory and goes selflessly to the cross. Look at the work of the second advocate. The work of the second advocate is always to point to Jesus, not to himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, let me tell you about myself. The second advocate's work is always to point us to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to show us how beautiful Jesus is, and to help us obey him. So do you see Jesus Christ emptying himself of his glory. That very revelation, that very understanding is the Holy Spirit pointing away from himself to Jesus. Do you want to have the Holy Spirit in your life? Stop thinking about yourself all the time. Stop your self-assertion, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, self-pity, self-condemnation. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants for you. Obey God. Love your enemies. Serve your neighbor. Live like Jesus. That's when you find the ministry of this ultimate friend flooding your life. And you'll know the glory of and joy of having him in the middle of your life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know there's a lot of other topics under this general heading we could dive into, but this, I believe, is the core of what it means to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.